6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Chronicles, chapters 18 through 21. There's a little verse in Isaiah 26 that in the English doesn't quite reach you, but it says, They are dead, they shall not live, they are deceased, they shall not rise, therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory to vanish. What's he talking about? The word deceased there is the Rephaim. This implies the Rephaim are not eligible for resurrection. Why? Because Christ did not become a Rephaim and die for them. They're a strange creature. That's also one of the reasons I hold the view that a clone, if you're going, if you're, when they argue about human clones, I don't believe a human clone can be saved because they're man-made. Anyway, Satan had a lot of stratagems. In Genesis 6, he corrupts Adam's line in the hope of preventing a Messiah. As, Adam, as God calls Abraham, Abraham's seed are singled out by Satan as a target. The famine in Genesis 50, the destruction of the male line in Exodus 1. Pharaoh's pursuit, after he says, go, you can go, go ahead and go, he changes his mind, goes after them to try to wipe them out. These are satanic attempts to try to wipe out God's plan. The population of Canaan. And as God now focuses on David, that the Messiah is going to be a son of David, that allows Satan now to focus his, his attack on the house of, of, of uh, uh, David. We're going to see in Second Chronicles how Joram kills his brothers, but he misses one. The Arabians slew all but one, Hazariah. Again and again, their servant catches a baby and hides it so it doesn't get, the wipeout doesn't take place. Athaliah kills all but Joash. Hezekiah is assaulted and so forth. Haman's attempt in the days of the Persian Empire to wipe out every Jew in the empire. These are all satanic attempts to try to thwart the plan of God. In the New Testament, Joseph's fears with Mary. He was going to put her away privately for fear because of the situation. Herod's attempts. Matthew 2, where he slaughters all the babes in Bethlehem. Very analogous. At Nazareth, when they tried to throw him off a cliff. And there are two storms at the sea, on the sea, and those were just not, those I don't believe were normal natural storms. Because these fishermen that had them as their native waters were terrified with what's going on. And then, of course, the element one is the cross. Say, well, gee. And then, of course, we see a summary of all of this in, in Revelation 12. So just review your Revelation 12 notes for all this. But the main point is Satan's not through. He's still at it. He still thinks he can thwart the plan of God. To understand his strategy, you need to understand the plan of God. How, where's the, where, you know, what, what are the spots? And that's why Satan is specifically targeting the Jew and specifically the believing Jew. What does the Golan Heights, Hebron, and the Gaza Strip have in common? They're all areas that Joshua failed to exterminate the Rephaim. If you, and uh, Deuteronomy 20 tells him to do it. Joshua 14 and so forth and following, he tries. If you do a study of the book of Judges, 
the generation after Joshua, Joshua did a pretty good job doing the first step, but it wasn't the follow-up. The generation that followed him failed to completely defeat the, the pockets of the Rephaim. And if you study the book of Judges in a geographical thing, you'll see there are certain territories uh, that um, they failed to seize and control. And those are the same territories that are contested today. And tell me that demons aren't territorial. Isn't that fascinating? I think that's... Jericho was Bet-Yara, the house of the moon god. Where's the PLO's headquarters today? Jericho. How interesting. Jesus on the cross, as exemplified by Psalm 22.12, says something very strange. As many bulls have compassed me, the strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea. But I do suspect that it has echoes somehow from the demon world. Okay, enough of this. Let's get back to First Chronicles. Pick up chapter 21. David's major sin. If I said to you, what was David's major sin? Most of you would say, well, that was the thing with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. Absolutely, from a personal point of view. From a national point of view, and that's why the chronicler spends a chapter on this one, there's a more subtle, perhaps, but more terrifying um, result here. David's census. Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. This is an editorial comment by the chronicler. He's summarizing. How did Satan do that? I have no idea. But somehow, Satan success successfully got, provoked David to number Israel. We'd say, gee, what's wrong with that? He's a military leader. He ought to take a census, find out what he needs to know how strong his forces are, and so forth. It seems quite innocent to us naively. But let's be careful. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba, even unto Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. Beersheba is way to the south, very deserty. The University of Negev is down there. And Dan, of course, is at the northern tip. So it's, like, it's sort of like saying from California to Maine, if you want to, or something, sort of. Number them. And Job answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Joab recognizes that this is not a kosher move. This is, Joab's words here indicate that he recognizes this is assertive. This is David's pride talking. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, and a hundred thousand men that drew the sword. Wow. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew the sword. It's using the word Israel here for the northern bunch in addition to Judah. Okay. 1,100,000 in the north, virtually a half a million, 470,000 in Judah itself. David has, you know, Moses had a, had took, a, took a census in the book of Numbers. He was told to, and he did. 
David has a million more than, than uh, Moses had. Notice Joab did not count the Levites or the Benjamites. We'll find them omitted. Well, Levi is not surprising because he was exempt from military duty, according to Numbers 1. But the Benjamin is just silent. We just, the, uh, the commentators presume that the census itself may have been frustrated before Benjamin could be counted. Joab's heart was probably not in it, and it was a resistant kind of thing. In any case, Benjamin's not counted here. Because David's command was repulsive to Joab, as we noticed. Now, if you go to the Samuel account, these don't quite jibe. The, the Samuel account indicates that there were 800,000 combat troops in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. Now, the NIV picks up a little on this, that the 1.1 in Chronicles was all Israel, included the 470,000 of Judah. That would, give, that would give a total of 630,000 for Israel proper. So that gets a little closer. The 800,000 in 2 Samuel 24.9 might include an estimate of 170,000 Levites plus 630 other Israelites. That's another. These are all different commentators try to reconcile that the numbers don't quite jive between the two. The 500,000 Judeans of 2 Samuel could also include an estimate of 30,000 Benjamites who were not counted by the chronicler. These are all ways to try to reconcile the discrepancies. The, another way to look at it is the chronicler's grand total of a million one may have included a standing army of 300,000, thus reducing the total to 800,000 given in 2 Samuel. And that helps explain why the chronicler detailed all those leaders of the, of the top military guys, the standing army. The 500,000 Judeans given in 2 Samuel may have included 470 of the First Chronicles along with a standing ar army of about 30,000. So these are all attempts to reconcile the discrepancy. But moving on in Chronicles, but Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. Uh-oh. David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. This is the winning thing about David. When he makes a mistake, he acknowledges it and repents of it. Even with Bathsheba, when called on it, he repented of that. That's why God could say of David, there's a man after my own heart. Not because he was perfect, he made mistakes, but he repented of them, he owned them, he did what he could to make them right. What was David doing wrong? Well, because he was not delighting in the Lord. He was delighting in his own might. Taking pride. pride is always the enemy. And it's the vulnerable trap for every one of us. So the thing that motivated him to number the people was the sin, an awful sin, of unbelief. David was trusting numbers instead of trusting God. And let me suggest that every one of us probably do that every day and don't realize it's dangerous. If we're confronted with an adulterous situation, it's pretty black and white, we understand that that's wrong. But this caused God, in a sense, as much, if not more, grief than the sexual sin with Bathsheba. And yet it's more subtle. It's something that we need to be tuned to. That's probably the main lesson of this session. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise men glory in his wisdom. I'm quoting here from Jeremiah 9, just to give you perspective. 
Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Amen. So continuing in Chronicles, the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things to choose thee, one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came unto David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, choose these. So here's what we call Hobson's choice. Here are the three that David had to pick from. Either three years of famine, oh boy, on the whole nation, man. Or three months to be destroyed before thy foes while the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee. Ouch. Three months of victory, uh, military defeats. Or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again unto him that sent me. Man, what would you choose? Those are tough, tough choices, right? David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So he chose to get it directly from God rather than from his enemies or that sort of thing. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. Boy. God sent an, an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, and as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the thrashing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The angel of the Lord. Now many scholars identify that phrase with a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And I'm not here to demean that. I'm not here to promote it. Just to let you aware of it. That is the view of, of a number of, of conservative scholars. Uh, there are places in the scripture where I do suspect it is the pre-incarnate Christ. Is that what's going on here? I really don't know. I really don't know. You can, you, you can get into these theological debates, but uh, we'll pass on that for our purposes. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord, my God, be on me and my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. And the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the thrashing floor of, Orn <coughs> of Ornan the Jebusite. David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan, now Ornan was a Jebusite, by the way. David had conquered the city, but this guy was a friend of his, turned out to be. A number of reasons to believe that. And uh, so he's a Jebusite. But he's watching this all go on. He's pretty impressed. See, Ornan turned back and saw the angel. And his four sons with him hid themselves, I can imagine. Now Ornan was thrashing wheat. It's a thrashing floor, that's what you expect. A thrashing floor, by the way, so you understand what we're talking about, is a saddleback. 
It's not the peak of a mountain. It's typically a saddleback situation which, in which there's a prevailing breeze. And what you did at harvest time is you took the, the wheat and thrashed it and threw it up in the wind. The grain, which is a little heavier, would fall downwind a short distance. But as you did this right, the chaff, which is lighter, would fall downwind further. And if you did this skillfully, you would end up with two piles. The nearer pile you'd bag for market and guard. The second pile you'd burn to keep away the vermin. And you typically did this in the evening as a celebration, like a great big pizza party kind of thing. Okay. But a, a thrashing floor was a very coveted uh, piece of ground in that culture because that's where you would thrash the wheat. It was typically a saddleback situation. Not necessarily at the top of the hill, it's in a saddleback. Anyway, so he was thrashing wheat, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the thrashing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And then David said, Ornan, grant me the place of this thrashing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. There was a going rate for this piece of ground, apparently. And Ornan said to David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. And, lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the thrashing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. Boy, we should take a good lesson there too. You always, in offering, you always give the best. And you don't give that which didn't cost you anything. So David gave to Ornan, for the place, 600 shekels of gold by weight. We'll come back to this because there's a big debate about some subtleties here, but just let's go on here. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. Notice that. We miss that often. The way they knew their offering was accepted is fire from heaven came and took it. That isn't poetic language. That's what happened here in several places. I'll give you a list in a minute. The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his, up his sword again into the sheath thereof. The sword of judgment was now sheathed. But at Golgotha, a little bit further north, a thousand years later, that sword will pierce the side of the Lord. Someone said, I got into the heart of God through a spear wound. Now, there are two words you'll encounter. Ornan is the way it's recorded here in Chronicles. When you read the same account in Samuel, it's Aruna. It's not clear from the, uh, the uh, transliteration here, but that they're both derivative of the same, same Hebrew root word, and uh, in effect. Now, Ornan sold to David the place for 600 shekels of gold. We just read that in 1 Chronicles 21.15. The account in 2 Samuel speaks of the seller as Aruna, and he sells to David the materials for 50 shekels of silver. And you wouldn't believe the viewpoints that derive from this. Um, the simple answer is the same guy, slightly different transaction I'll come back to. There are some rabbinical scholars 
that argue that these are two different transactions in two different locations. And where this uh, uh, ends up, um, there are people that believe that the cross of Christ stood on the Mount of Olives. And the reason they believe that is they, they have this view that you could see from there down through the Golden Gate, through the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And there's an elaborate set of traditions around that. There's a number of problems, because the, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. And to make that all visible at one instant, assuming that was the case, um, the fact that Matthew records it all together doesn't mean it all happened at one at the, together. But in any case, um, uh, a lot of this all derives, strangely enough, from this textual discrepancy between these two. I won't get into the other thing. It's hard for me to defend something that I don't think is correct, but uh, I wouldn't do it for justice. But the general view of most conservative textual scholars is that Aruna and Ornan are the same guy, slightly different accent in terms of the Hebrew derivation of it. But uh, what David bought for 50 shekels of silver was the floor itself and the oxen and the, the uh, tools, the package, the thrashing floor. Apparently he then, maybe in a subsequent discussion, bought the whole site for 600 shekels of gold. That's the, that's the, the uh, typical uh, commentary, uh, exposition, uh, uh, expositional commentary view of this. Uh, that the 600 shekels of gold, obviously a much larger price, was for the entire site. So, now Aruna was one of David's chief friends and spared by him when he took the citadel. And this is, you'll find in Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 7, verse 13, etc. To familiarize yourself a little bit with the topography, Mount Moriah is actually a ridge system. And uh, this shows you Solomon's walls that will come later. North is to the top. Mount Zion is the mountain to the west, and Mount of Olives a mountain to the, to the uh, east. So visualize three mountain ranges. Between the, uh, uh, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah is the Teropian Valley. Between Mount Moriah and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. And to the south is the Hinnom Valley. And they all show prominently. And the city of David is down at the southern end. It's about 600 meters above sea level. And the, the, thrash, the thrashing floor is at a saddleback, but it's not at the peak yet. And uh, the Gion Spring is also there, and they have an undergrad, Hezekiah made an underground tunnel so you could get to the Pool of Siloam and so forth. Now let's take a look at this on a topo map a little more accurately. And uh, Mount Zion is to the west, Mount of Olives to the east, and the ridge system... The high point of that ridge system is between those two, with the Kidron Valley to the uh, uh, east, the Teropian Valley to the west, and the Hinnom Valley to the south. Salem, the city, the Jebusite city that David conquers, is at the southern part of this ridge system. The thrashing floor of Aruna is where, which is what later becomes the Temple Mount. We're going to deal with that in the next chapter. A little, but that's about 741 meters above sea level. A little further to the north is the peak, a place called Golgotha. And I believe that's where Abraham offered Isaac, and that's also where another father offered his son some 2,000 years later. And this is just an amplification of the same thing to give you a little tighter perspective. Fire from heaven. That's the way Abel knew his offering was accepted and Cain knew his wasn't in Genesis, I believe. Fire from heaven is when the, first, when the tabernacle was first set up in Leviticus 9. David's repentance here, 
the fire from heaven is specifically called for. When the temple is ultimately consecrated under Solomon, Second Chronicles 7, you'll see it happen again. Fire comes from, comes from heaven in judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah had fire from heaven. Elijah called down fire from heaven on several occasions, the 50s and then Carmel and all that. And of course, after the millennium, after a thousand-year reign, again, Satan's loosed. Again, there's another Gog-Magog event, and fire from heaven deals with that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. Fire from heaven will also be called down by the false prophet, Revelation 13, 13. Now, that's, that's going to be a grabber. So, let's finish this up. At, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the thrashing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering, were at that, at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. I can understand that. So he began to worship at this site regularly, that is the threshing floor that he purchased, and that's where that becomes then the site of the temple. It's going to be very, very prominent. It's important for us to learn the lesson that David learned. What did David learn? Well, he, he reflects it in Psalm 118. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Oh, in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. That's his lesson. What's our lesson? What do we carry away from this? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Do I really trust God? I think God finds a different way every day to say, hey, do you really trust me? That's the whole issue. Do we really believe God? Writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him. Lord Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit would come into the world, He would convict the world of sin. Really? What kind of sin? Because they believe not on me. In John 16. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Oh boy. Whatever you're doing that's not of faith is sin. Think that through. Read First Chronicles 22-25 for the next session. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.